Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Ghana. Ghana has always been a powerhouse in West Africa. Many kingdoms existed here. Ghana is a, is a stuff of legend. People who study Africa very quickly will come face to face with Ghana, just along the same as with other countries, such as Benin, such as Nigeria, such as Congo. All those were big empires, big kingdoms that had shaped Africa long before the colonials showed up on the continent. Ghana is particularly very important when you consider modern history of Africa. It was the first country to gain independence under the leadership of the late Nkwame Nkrumah, who was considered visionary and used to be called the Osajifo. It's also the country that led Africa into a series of coups and country coups starting in 1966 until the late Jerry Rawlings staged the last coup in 1981, became president, and then ushered the democratic era in 1992. And since then, Ghana has been a democracy. It's also been an exemplar of democratic change, not just democratic change, but economic change as well, because Ghana went through tough reforms to stabilize its economy. Today, Ghana is also a leader in many other fronts, including peacekeeping operations. Ghana is an important troop-contributing country in the UN system. The Ghanaians were present during the genocide in Rwanda and contributed to try to stem the killings in the best way they could under the tough circumstances, along with Senegalese troops and others. While the European troops evacuated, African troops did remain in Kigali and surrounding areas and tried to do their best. Today, Ghana is facing all the challenges that uh, the rest of the continent is facing. Notably, the threat that is stemming from Burkina Faso and the Sahel region. And with that, Ghana is among the countries that the United States selected as part of the Global Fragility Act, along with Benin, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, and Mozambique in the eastern part of Africa. Ghana, it's a country that I think a lot of us in the world need to understand why things are where they are today. Joining me to discuss development in this great country is Mutaru Mumuni Mukhtar, who is the executive director of West Africa Center for Counter Extremism. It's a pleasure to be here in Ghana with you, Mukhtar. Mutaru, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bamba. So Ghana, your country, is one that is talked about quite a bit. What is the general situation in Ghana today? Whether you want to take it economics, you want to talk development, or you want to talk good governance? Well, thank you very much. I think it's very, very impressive profile you've given Ghana in your analysis. And it was interesting and funny that you mentioned that Jerry Rollins staged the last coup and hopefully should be the last coup the country should ever have. As we speak now, there are several things, you know, that you can talk about in terms of what is the state of the country. I work in the area of security, so security is what comes to me uh, naturally to talk about. If we look at where Ghana is positioned, 
in a very unique way. If you look at our history, if you look at the political history, economic history, it's positioned in a very unique way that we often refer to ourselves as the, the gateway to Africa and largely the destination, you know, in Africa. But today, our country is challenged in many ways. We saw the threat of violent extremism moving towards coastal states from the Sahel. So in the last five years, six years, Ghana has been more, you know, alert in terms of our awareness and realization of this threat. And we saw that this threat is not just moving, it's moving fast in a very dreadful way. Five, six years ago, we didn't have terrorism in Burkina Faso, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Benin, in Togo. Today, we're having terrorism happening in all these spaces. And so we'll be more exposed to terrorism than ever. The threat is closer to us than before. And so we've seen this, the nation, the state, together with other stakeholders, including civil society, making a lot of adjustments and preparations, you know, to safeguard against that. And especially what we call building resilience within the local space against terrorism. And the great thing is that we're seeing international efforts at countering terrorism, focusing much more on coastal states. Coastal states are currently at risk of being run over by extremist groups. We're seeing a lot of efforts in this direction. Uh, you refer to the uh, the Global Fragility Act, which is a new act, or, I mean, approach to dealing with the threat in, in West Africa, especially targeting coastal states. And Ghana has been part of it. Not necessarily we have terrorism happening here, because, but we are part of, you know, the legion, part of, you know, the countries that are exposed to it. And it's very, very important to look at the threat, not from, you know, country basis, but from regional perspective. And so it's important that we are seen as part of the larger coastal states, you know, uh, mix of countries that are dealing with the threat. And so we welcome this kind of intervention or this kind of program at dealing with it. And so Ghana uh, is much more prepared now, now than before, because we used to sort of act in ways that appeared that were dismissive of the threat. But the reality is that it's a very real threat. It's a threat that all, you know, stakeholders, you know, prepare to deal with. So what happened? Ghana, as I said earlier, had been a, a model. You call it the gateway to West Africa. There had been a stable economy here, democratic transition, good governance. You've been a flag bearer when it came to that as a country. What gave? So you cite 1992. 1992 is a watershed moment. This is, you know, it's a huge landmark in our political and economic history. It's a huge landmark in our democracy, in our efforts at development and transformation. Because this is an era that ushered in the Ford Republic, which we still enjoy today. The Ford Republic ushered in all the values and institutions and the governance and security architecture that we enjoy today. And so over the last three decades, Ghana has been projected in that the light that you paint now a model for, you know, democracy, a model for economic reform, a model for transformation, a model in terms of a nation that can transition from, you know, a military dictatorship, authoritarian regime into electoral democracy. And so we've been very, very proud about that. Unfortunately, in the last, you know, a couple of years, maybe in the last six, 10 years, we've seen significant shift in terms of deterioration of governance. We are seeing huge, huge flaws in terms of the capacity of this country to hold on and keep that image that we've been very, very proud about. We're seeing deterioration in the quality of governance. We're seeing deterioration in security. We're seeing a lot of things in terms of the, the wheels of our democracy seem to be coming off. 
And it's largely because of what I call poor and ineffective oversight institutions. The oversight institutions we have haven't been up to task in terms of their capacity to hold the institutions of governance and security accountable to ensure that we continue to enjoy the peace and stability this country is, you know, is known for. Security sector reforms that have been significantly uh, attributable to the stability of this country has been significantly undermined in terms of application, in terms of the quality of institutions and the transformations and reforms that were done throughout the 90s and part of the early 2000s. And so this is a huge, huge feature of our system that should worry all of us in terms of how we can build on it and transition this country into a model that is truly, truly enviable in terms of democratic practice and economic reform. So you raised a number of issues there. You talked about governance, you talked about security sector reform, you talked about institutions that are not standing up to, I think, what we call the social contract. Let's break it down a little bit. In terms of security, um, as I said earlier, Ghana contributes a lot of troops to United Nations peacekeeping operations. The Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Center is located right here in Ghana. We're in Accra. In terms of democracy, what worked and what did not work? Let's take this piece by piece so okay. the audience can appreciate better. So you start by talking about peacekeeping operations. So when we transitioned into a democracy, there was still the fear that the military was still meddling in political affairs and governance. And so there was a need to find ways to engage the military in a professional, in a more you know, effective way to, just, I mean, to move or refocus them away from internal politics and, and governance issues. And so there was a very deliberate I mean, attempt at ensuring that our military forces are part of UN peacekeeping operations. And we've, I mean, we did so well in this area, so much so that it created a new sort of identity for Ghana in a very positive way within the international space. And internally, it created a lot of attraction for military officers to want to serve within the UN peace, I mean, within the UN as UN peacekeeping. It's you know, prestigious, it's good it's training. Prestigious. Exactly. And also the fact that it rewards more, much more than they would actually be rewarded. So monetarily, exactly. financially, the bonus. and mm -hmm. okay. So that was a huge incentive to distract away from internal politics of our country. If you look at a lot of institutions that we talk about in terms of the anchor, the, what is making this nation what it is, in terms of governance and in terms of security, they all came about as a result of the 1992 constitution. You talk about the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Center. This probably would not have been possible under the military regime. This came about in the early 2000s, set up under you know, the you know, very, very honorable Kofi Annan's name. And it's, it's continued to serve as, you know, a key center for excellence in terms of training for peacekeeping training uh, within the region and within Africa generally. All these institutions, look at accountability institutions like the Shroud Commission of Human Rights and Administrative Justice, the Defense and Interior Committee of Parliament that holds the oversight role duty to ensure that we maintain a high level of commitment to preserving peace and stability in this country. It has been very ineffective and very recent times. You say ineffective. Let's let's stop there a little bit. You've had since '92. You had democratic transition. Yeah. The rest of the world, particularly in Africa, they look at Ghana. They say, "Look at Ghana. They've had orderly, peaceful transition since Jerry Rawlings. You've gone to uh, various presidents, right? Kufour. 
Mills, Mahama. Now we're talking about Nana Akufo Ado. So the, the rest of the continent looks at this. This is good. This is not happening everywhere in Africa. Has been their problem with the transition of democracy. The picture you paint is akin to like a relationship that looks very fancy and attractive to onlookers. But within, you're hurting. What is hurting in, within? If you look at the structures we have in place, it's fantastic from the outside. And it's true within the space. If you analyze the security architecture, the reforms, the institutions and all that, they are great. But the quality of delivery is deteriorating and is due to several factors. So for instance, maybe in the last six months, there have been several things that have happened in this space that worry or should worry everyone who is interested in Ghana's peace and stability. There's a huge involvement of military and security officials. I mean, military involvement in civilian roles in terms of security. And that comes with huge human rights abuses to citizens. We saw in a very brutal way, it has never happened in the Ford Republic, where you see wholesale involvement of military officers who have been deployed. And we actually told upon probing that this was a, a, an exercise sanctioned officially to go into your community and brutalize citizens on the basis of suspicion in terms of their involvement in a crime. People are currently suffering from that brutality that happened a couple of months back. And this is a huge, huge blot on the image of our security officials and the, the image of Ghana. Are you talking we about saw, military? You talking about law enforcement? Not law enforcement officers, this military and officers. What, what was the context of this? The context was that one officer who, I mean, one officer was attacked. Some, depending on the narrative you hear, attacked by armed robbers and killed. And on the basis of that, there was a deployment of military officers into that community to brutalize anyone on site if it looked like what they suspect to be somebody who could do that. And there were huge numbers of people lined up on the streets and whipped and brutalized, even on muddy waters on the streets. This has never, we've never seen an image, I mean, that kind of imagery of brutality within the space. Before that, we've seen the role of military in civilian roles, like engaging in policing for election-related policing activities. We've seen the role of the military used in a very abusive way in protecting mining, mining sites, mining sites that are believed to be operated by illegal miners and small-scale miners and engage in brutalities against populations what and mining is illegal gold mining, you know, uh, spaces in this place. And we've seen the role of the military, the image of the military significantly has been very, very badly damaged. Is this happening with the sanction of civilian leaders? Because there is obviously civilian oversight of the military in this country. Yes. So very often when that happens, you are not going to see leaders taking responsibility and trying to address it. You're going to see leaders come out to rationalize and try to justify what that why that has happened when clearly there isn't any way not you know any way this sort of things could be justified under a republican constitution. And we've seen the you know the role of oversight institutions run over by politicians and manipulated by the way they function. So, for instance, you have the the committee of parliament, defense and interior committee, that should actually play that effective role. But they are not. We are, they, we are expecting to see them call the leadership of the military or any security agencies under whose care something like that happens to appear before parliament, explain and account for it, 
you know, suggest measures or, or come out with measures to address it. We don't often see that. It often comes several, several, you know, too late and very, very poorly. These things are the things that are, you know, bringing the wheels of our democracy off. If you look at the, the reforms that came after 1992, they were great, they were effective for that purpose at the time. But over time, they've been largely ineffective. And we're beginning to look into the detail and seeing loopholes in this sort of reforms that happened. So for instance, if you have the, look at the Ghana Police Service. The Ghana Police Service is headed by the IGP. And the IGP for a very long time. The IGP has been the Inspector, Inspector General of Police. Police. Yes. For many decades, it's been a very big political tool used by politicians to prosecute, you know, political agenda or get at people or even just leave them function in a very dysfunctional way. Of course, and specifically the current IGP seem to be doing better than most or most who came recent times. The IGP, together with the entire system, polit- police system, is a huge political creation in terms of leadership. And that lends it to manipulation by politicians. And that is why policing at the top level has been very, very dysfunctional, very political, and very ineffective. The police service is headed, I mean, is, is, is manned or directed by a police council. There's a council in charge of that. And the police council, the composition is a political composition. You have the vice president, who is the chair of the police council, who is a political appointee. You have the minister for interior part of the council, who is a political appointee. You have the attorney general, you have minister of trade, and several government appointees who are politicians in that space. The constitution, the 1992 constitution, actually allows or provide, gives power to the president to appoint two additional people who are civilians, who could be anybody, could be his friends. And these are political appointments that are made. You cannot and should not expect that kind of political composition of a leadership who directs the affairs of the police to do, you know, an independent job. So I have a question, a couple of questions on those. One, you do have a democracy, you have a parliament. What role is parliament played in trying to stem the challenge that you have outlined here? And then two, what's the role of civil society in this oversight? So parliament, the big role of parliament is to serve as checks on the other, you know, executives and even including the judiciary and all that. And the big thing umbrella is the oversight responsibility of parliament, which I met, I referred to earlier as a very dysfunctional. Parliament has been very dysfunctional. It's very disappointing. In spite of the huge powers conferred on parliament by the constitution, we still see parliament very, very, very dysfunctional. They are more effective and functional when it comes to polit- politics and the political interests of you know, the people who lead this nation. But when it comes to the security and the interests of the, you know, the masses, the country, you know, the people, this is where you see them being very dysfunctional. And I say that because an institution like that, if it fails to protect the most vulnerable society, it means that's the worst kind of institution to have. We haven't seen enough progress in terms of parliament seeking to reform these things. Civil society has been very, very vocal in terms of calling for reforms. So for instance, we've been calling for the setting up of an independent police commission. And that police commission should oversee the appointment of an IGP who is answerable to the constitution and not to the president. Because as it is now, it is the president who appoints an IGP, is the president who fires the IGP, is the president who directs through the police council what the IGP should do or should not do. And I say that on authority because if you look at the constitution under the police council, it says that the Ghana police service is at the direction and control of the police council. 
which is a political creation. And so on that score, it's a huge, huge problem in terms of seeking to create independence for the police uh, service to function. So the Independent Police Commission would ensure that you, you know, list people who seeking to serve as an IGP. You shortlist them, you put them before parliament for vetting, they get selected, get approved by president. He is not answerable to parliament, he's not answerable to the president or any individual. He's answerable to the constitution, but he's still, you know, subjected to, you know, scrutiny and oversight rule by parliament because parliament can sanction or call him before parliament to answer to the people. So of if, they, if they called him uh, before parliament for hearings and so on? He will still go. Anyone who is called by parliament would still go. It's just a bit part of the function or part of the things that they could do. But he's been called and he's shown up. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. And so this is the ledger on the side of security and democracy and checks and balances. Your assessment is that that system is faltering, yeah. failing, mm -hmm. and it's dangerously failing. So yeah. if I understand correctly, that means there's a lot of public discontent in the country. On the economic front, because that was another element where the world looked at Ghana and said, Ghana has done a good transition. You had those years yeah. of necklace and yeah. things were tight. Mm -hmm. But Ghana seemed to have come out of that, those dark days yeah. successfully. But now we're talking about inflation and other things. So what is the status of the economy? Today, as we speak, if I were a government official, I would very, I would grin and I would smile with the feeling that there's some respite, some kind of a reprieve. Because the World Bank has approved, IMF has approved, you know, a World Bank loan for us. And this is a loan we've been chasing for more than half a year. And it, it seems that it, it, it appears to be the panacea to the problems that we're looking at. On a more serious note, Ghana is in a very difficult economic situation. And most analysts will tell you that we've never gone to, gotten to this place in the last 30 years. Inflation has gone worse than isn't at record high, more than 20 year record high. We've never had this figure of inflation from since the 90s. We've seen GDP growth plummet, I mean, you know, gone down. We've seen all the indices, economic indices going down very, very badly. And we're seeing hardship in many forms. Hardship in terms of the lack of economic opportunities for young people, in terms of jobs, and in terms of creating businesses. Today, it's very, very difficult to live in Accra as a young person in terms of looking for jobs. So the economic situation is in a very, very, the economic situation is very, very bad for Ghana. And in spite of what I just mentioned, then the IMF loan that is coming, there's very little optimism amongst a large section of Ghanaians. Right. That we could get out of this space because there seem to be a sense of leadership or policies that have been discredited. And so we don't seem to have that goodwill and support for the sort of reforms that we're seeing or we're being told about. So you're saying we're there's seeing... money that's supposed to help, mm -hmm. but you're saying the Ghanaian populations do not trust the government to use that loan efficiently to meet the goals, meaning the objective to alleviate the suffering. Exactly, exactly. You say. And why is that? It is because we do not, we seem to have lost confidence and trust in leadership. And I, I mean, this is a very general statement to make. But if you look at what has happened in, to this country in the last three years, uh, it shows that we have lost, you know, the goodwill to lead and to provide the economic opportunities and to provide the economic salvation that we the, the, the country badly needs. You had the top leadership of the country, including the president and his ministers, tell us in plain language 
that this country is strong. This country is not going to IMF or not go to IMF today. We will not go to IMF tomorrow. We will never go to IMF. So they'd win themselves from IMF. Exactly. And the Brenton. And those were political statements that were then, I mean, then said to get at their opponents and, you know, create a sense of, a sense of triumphalist, you know, image in the minds of the people. Um, less than three months, we were actually advocating to go to IMF and telling the whole nation how it would be great to have an IMF loan to transform this country. What changed? We didn't see anything, you know, but just, uh, and also if you look at the culture of politics in this country, we seem to have uh, politics all year round. We don't seem to have off and on seasons in terms of political campaigns. Mm -hmm. Today we've had the largest opposition party that has elected their own flag bearer. It's ready to do battle. He's ready to campaign. The ruling party is gearing, is preparing towards that. They are purchasing, they are doing huge purchases in terms of spending for campaigns. The army of loan, some analysts will tell you, it's a huge, huge booster to the campaign of the ruling party. Significant part of that loan will go into politicking and campaigning towards 2024 elections. And so then it might leave the economy much worse than it is now after elections. Life in many African countries is determined by both the formal and the informal economy. The formal economy is what you're talking about, but then there's the informal economy, which is often bigger mm-hmm. and actually more impactful because the larger portion of the populations often live within the informal economy. How do you assess that in, in, uh, in Ghana? Yes, is this true for Ghana? It is true for uh, most parts of Africa. The, the informal economy, it's, it's a huge uh, space. And Ghana has known this for so long. And so for more than 30 years, we've been talking about formalizing the informal sector, supporting the informal sector to ensure that they contribute significantly to, to the economy. And when you talk about taxes, you're looking at how do you broaden the tax net to you know, ensure that more and more of these informal sector participants are part of it and contribute more to the economy. Unfortunately, we have not succeeded in doing that because the foundation is, is, is very poor. We do not have a foundation, an infrastructure to plug, you know, get all these informal sector players onto it. And so we still largely, you know, the same way as it had been in the last 30 years in terms of our capacity to get them onto the formal space. But of course, technology has come, digital tools have become a very pervasive part of our engagement. And so there's a section that is plugging onto the digital space. Even though the background is informal, uh, young people are creating initiatives and creating job opportunities for themselves using digital tools. And so those are significant things that we see among young people. What we lack or what we, we are not seeing is government deliberate big programs that are intended at roping in informal sector players using digital tools and digital platforms. Elsewhere in East Africa, I may not have the data, but I see in some parts of East Africa and Southern Africa, this is a big, big thing. If you look at what is happening in Nairobi, what is happening in What South is the big thing? The big thing in terms, of, in terms digital of technology. technology. Yeah, digital technology and how they're using it to uh, transform uh, payment platforms, how they're using it to transform transactions and participants in, in the digital space. It's a big thing. Here, it has happened, but in a very, not in that uh, productive way as uh, we should have had it. I saw that even Togo during COVID, yeah. they used a digital platform to pay, to, to you know, to transfer payment to, uh, to a big chunk of society, mm. particularly people in the informal sector. Mm. The other thing I want to ask you, you know, in every African city, I mean, every country, in every African country, there's this gap between the rural area and the cities. You and I are in Accra, 
Accra is the capital city. So the infrastructure, amenities that the population has access to, mm -hmm. is typically different from the interior. How do you draw that contrast between the urban settings and the rural, for instance, between the city here and the interior? Yeah, so there's a there's Accra, Ghana, and there's a out of Accra, Ghana. Accra is not Ghana. The huge, there's a huge difference in terms of uh, access to services, uh, infrastructure, and the opportunities that are available to people who, I mean, who live in Accra. I'm here in Accra, and I'm not originally from here. I'm from, what, uh, 12, 13 hours by drive from here in the north, about 700 kilometers from here. And a lot of young people of my age who are looking to make, you know, to make a living or to create a career and whatever they've studied, then you have to take your bag and come to Accra. And it's continuously like that. And so you see Accra expanding in, I mean, very fast rate. You can actually drive from here the next two hours and you'll still be in Accra. You know, so there's that huge difference. Uh, there are some parts of this country that are actually in a very, very deplorable state. And you wonder, you can ask yourself whether this, uh, you know, part, these pe people are part of the Ghana that we talk about. And there's a place in some parts in the northeastern part of northern Ghana. Uh, close to the border of, of Togo. Uh, we, we've been doing some work, some programs in this part, and we are often very, very demoralized to see the reality of infrastructure in this part. There are some parts during them, sometimes of the year, you cannot access those communities because of the nature of the, I mean, poor roads in this part. Telecommunication services is very poor. Even basic food items, very, very limited in this part. And that brings in the question of the vulnerability to violent extremism and exploitation by extremist groups. We see in the Sahel, a huge phenomenon is that there are some parts that are, have, you know, absence of the state. As governments or state government presence is very, very limited in many parts of these spaces that allows for extremist groups to exploit that and take advantage of the absence of the state to provide services to create a sense of meaning for vulnerable young people. But that's in the Sahel. Do you feel like the segment or section of this country where also the state is absent? Very, very much so in many parts of northern Ghana. I mean, it doesn't look like a nice way to say it, but it's true that in many parts of northeastern part of Ghana and parts of Savannah, parts of the Northern Bloc, there's some parts that government is very limited in terms of presence, in terms of services, in terms of capacity to provide services to them. There are some parts that still struggle with water, provision of water services, and they just need a simple borehole for that. There are places where they are struggling with healthcare facilities. Just one healthcare facility in a village served as seven dozens of other villages in the area. Same with educational facilities. So these things are significantly different from what you see in Accra and Kumasi and Tamale and Takrade. And those are things governments need to pay attention to in terms of how do we build resilience against violent extremism. It is not enough to educate people about what violent extremism is about. It's more important to create opportunities for young people to engage. And the danger is that that phenomenon is very repetitive. It's very, very pervasive in most parts of West, you know, West Africa. These things are a huge phenomenon. Uh, it's acknowledged by a study. I, tried to, I was trying to make a reference to this study by the, by the UNDP, the Journey to Extremism, that identifies young people as a huge, huge demography for violent extremism. And the fact that terrorist groups seem to understand young people better than the states. How, how so? Because they are able to pay attention to understand the aspirations and vulnerabilities of young people. And what do and they, they offer them that the government them, doesn't offer? They offer them a sense of meaning and belonging. They offer them a sense of importance and relevance in society. 
There are young people who are struggling, uh, not instantaneously, they are struggling, you know, over time, seeking for meaning, seeking for participation, seeking for economic participation. And those opportunities are very, very absent or limited. And extremist groups take advantage of that. You run the West Africa Center for Counter Extremism, uh, WACCE. You're based in Accra. In your engagement, how do you engage both the youth, the vulnerable portion of the society that you've just described, mm -hmm. but also the policymakers here in Accra and across the country so that you can address those issues? So we are very grassroots-based organizations. So almost every part of this country in terms of regions and even the specific communities, especially in the north, we have contacts all over and networks all over and several other West African countries. So we deal with local people to understand the reality of the vulnerabilities that they are faced with. And we tailor programs to meet that. And once you, you have that kind of infrastructure, it allows you to see the local reality of the problems that you're dealing with. And that then allows you to interface with policymakers to relate to them what the reality is on the ground. And I tell people in the last four years, I've been saying in policy circles, look, the sort of terrorism we are seeing in West Africa is largely a frustration of young people. It's a manifestation of the anger and frustrations of young people who have lost confidence and trust in the capacity of their states to provide them what I often call the entitlements of citizenship. And this entitlements relate to job creation. It leads to the sense of feeling a citizen of where they come from opportunities to participate and opportunities to feel a relevant part of society. This has been missing in terms of state's capacity to provide in West Africa. And that's why we're seeing this trend and that trend might still continue. Do you have full access to policymakers and do they listen to you? I would not say yes. Access, physical access is not, doesn't mean embracing and accepting what recommendations you make. And so, yeah, I can set up meetings with people and talk to them. But do they listen? Do they take that on board? And that's the challenge. But why would not, why would not they listen? Because we, in Washington, D.C., we heard your president clearly say that Wagner was in Burkina Faso. It caused a lot of diplomatic tension. Between so, so, so just but before we go further, if government was listening, that statement would not have been made at all at where it was made. Why? Because it was wrong to have made that diplomatically and realistically, it was wrong to have made practically, it was wrong to have made that, I mean, for, for us to have made that statement artificially and publicly that this is what Wagner is doing. The northern border is our neighbor. We've just been divided by colonial authorities. We interact as communities as part of a bigger, you know, African society. We could have set up a meeting and talked to them. This is what we this is what we feel. This is you what mean we think. Ghana would have talked to Burkina Faso. Yes, exactly. This thread we're dealing with, no nation is adequately resourced or tooled to deal with terrorism. You need to look at it from a regional perspective. That implies that talking to your neighbors and working together, creating activities that build goodwill and trust between us. That single statement in Washington actually was a huge, huge drawback in terms of international cooperation that we're looking for in West Africa. You just saw we pioneering and leading the Accra Initiative. What is the Accra Initiative about? It's anchored on the capacity of regional bodies, I mean, regional I mean, countries along the coast to work together, to share intelligence, and to do joint border patrol activities. If you make a statement like that, it undermines that goodwill. And in fact, we did see that because the government of Burkina Faso 
called our ambassador, withdrew their ambassador from Accra, and that created a diplomatic row. And it took a while for us to be able to patch up. Even as we speak now, I'm not sure how patched up we have been, you know, in dealing with this. And so if government was listening to civil society voices in terms of how to deal with things, this statement would not have been made at all. But the government certainly cares about the people. They have the uh, responsibility for security. What are they doing that you think gives you hope? What gives me hope is that, uh, and I'll be very honest, what gives me hope is that I interact with people at the national security ministries and other agencies. And I see a very genuine desire amongst a good number who are seeking to work in the interest of the people of Ghana. I've seen a significant interest in terms of how to design measures dealing with terrorism. We've seen the national framework for preventing and countering violent extremism. I've seen people working, setting up institutions and trying to make it work, like the Fusion Center, the counterterrorism units at the Fusion Center, the ministry. So we have people like that who are actually uh, genuinely working for peace and stability of this country, but also have the elements of politics and politicians who are seeking to actually undermine these activities. So, for instance, you have uh, a program because we've been we've now been faced with the reality of violent extremism. And then government comes out with something they call the unveiling terrorism ambassadors. And you line up people, you think they are social media, you know, celebrities and musicians, and then you influencers. call them influencers, they are counterterrorism ambassadors. Who does that? We, we don't do that. It was no brainer. This is not something you should do at all. But there's a political reasoning. There's a political objective for doing those things. And those things don't, should not, and must not feature insecurity. So here's a question then. You describe the regional dynamics. You've described the national dynamics, even local dynamics. But we started by talking about Global Fragility Act, which is an international thing, of course, spearheaded by the United States, which has a lot of money. Where is the gap? There's so many gaps here, but where is the gap between what you just described internally and regionally and the support that countries like Ghana or the littoral states mm. are receiving from the likes of the United States or the European Union and other donors? So we have to look at it from multiple sources. So if you look at the top and we're talking about leadership, you cannot have anything effective and successful within the states if we don't have effective leadership. And uh, we've seen what is happening, the contagion of coups that happened in the last two years in Mali, in Guinea, in Burkina Faso, and possibly, possibly more, depending on what happens. We need to be able to structure this leadership, I mean, these leaders in these countries in a way that makes it very functional and allows institutions within to function. Like the operations of the, the architecture of governance must be put in a way that it functions effectively so that this fragility act and the content, what it's seeking to do would be effective in addressing. So part of the fragility act should be addressing the quality of governance and, and leadership. Leadership is key to this. Leadership, not just having democratic or elections, not just having elections, because these are very well rehearsed things that we have learned over and time. And you're having elections soon. Yeah, we're having elections soon. And it creates the impression that once you have elections, it's great, your country is doing well. We have to look at the quality of leadership in these places. Uh, and I make the argument that we seem to focus so much on, on power and the power, the people, the leaders seem to focus so much on power and not the people. And I always make the argument that no amount of democracy or leadership can guarantee development and transformation if the focus of leadership is on power and not the people, which is what we see in many parts of the region. 
once you sort that out, you have to look at the, the youth demography. We are the youngest population in the world. And yet we have very, very limited capacity to provide for young people in terms of how they can realize their aspirations. Today, if you want to create a business as a young people, as a teenager, 19, 20 years, there is no special incentive for young people to create a business. We don't have special incentives for groups of young people who are seeking to innovate or experiment a technology, uh, make a provision. It may not work in the next two years, in the next three years. What is the, what is the buffer? You know, there's no state intervention in that kind of space. And the youth demography, those in development will tell you that we have to look at them as, you know, a dividend in a positive way. But if you work in security, it's almost impossible not to see the youth as a threat, as constituting, you know, a huge, you know, threat to security because we have not provided for them. So, the so a chunk of that, mm -hmm. the Fragility Act must be looking at providing opportunities for young people creating spaces in terms of civil you know, engagement and economic engagement for young people to ensure that they are positively engaging and contributing to society. Thank you very much for that, uh, um, Daru. This has been very insightful for me. It's a pleasure to be with you here in uh, Accra, Ghana. Analyze your country through the eyes of a citizen of this country. Analyze the threat here. Mutaru Mumuni Mutar. Executive Director of West Africa Center for Counter Extremism. We thank you. Welcome and thank you again. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org/slash Africa. So long. <laughs>